0: Visit PlannedParenthood.org/future to learn more and support their cause.
1: I care about humans. Some of my best <laughs> friends are humans. I'm married to a human. <laughs>
2: Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias. My guest today is Dylan Matthews. He's Vox.com senior correspondent and host of the Future Perfect podcast. We are here to introduce a new season of that podcast. It is all about meat. And today we're going to give you the first episode of the new season, which is about a, a subject that's near and dear to my heart, pig excrement. Uh, so Dylan, welcome to the show. I always have to be here. So, I don't actually want to say too much about the pig shit because that's the one that that we're going to see here. But, but just tell us like briefly what's the what's the issue here?
1: So, pig shit is important because pigs, as it turns out, and I did not know this before making the season, uh, produce about eight to ten times as much excrement per day as humans do. Pigs are pretty enormous. They tend to weigh a great deal more than the average human. And so if you have farms like we do in the United States where you have thousands or tens of thousands of pigs living in really close proximity to each other, they're going to produce a lot of shit. And because this is a a big business, you have to figure out how to store that shit or displace it or use it in the most efficient and cost-effective way possible. And so our episode is all about one way that farms have figured out how to do that, um, one way that's dominant in North Carolina, which is one of the biggest uh, pork-producing states in, in the country. And that way is to spray it up into the air to use as fertilizer. That makes a lot of economic sense if you're growing crops and you would like cheap fertilizer. What our episode is all about is why it's not great if you live near one of these farms or if you live near a bunch of these farms and your town just constantly smells of excrement.
2: Yeah, it's um it's very smelly. I I have not been to one of these uh Carolina pig operations, but I did go I was in Denmark one time and uh they were showing me an innovative biodiesel project which was a you know a, a, another use of this excrement uh, but it it had to be you know transported uh, it's it's quite malodorous and you know when things smell bad uh, it makes you wonder is this bad for you um and and i you know i i think one of the the upshots here is right we don't think of this as like an air pollution hazard at least in the conventional sense but like obviously it is right the the reason you can smell this is that there's little particles floating around and it it's bad
1: Exactly. Not only are there little particles floating around, but some of this gets into groundwater. Um, During natural disasters, North Carolina gets very heavily affected by hurricanes. And so you have these giant lagoons of pig waste and not to be excessively gross, but they, they tend to overflow and flood into nearby rivers and towns and even like houses. And I think one thing I've learned a lot from listening to the weeds and, and reading Vox.com in recent years is that air pollution is is a really, really big deal. I, I of course always knew that air pollution is bad, but I didn't know it was like cause massive gaps in educational attainment, leads to lots of excess crime, kind of bad. And what we found talking to community activists and going through the research of people, uh, particularly an epidemiologist named Steve Wing, who passed away a couple of years ago, who have looked into this, is that sure enough, spraying this waste into the air is correlated with a bunch of bad outcomes. Um, there was a recent Duke study that found uh, higher mortality the closer you were to these operations from a bunch of different causes. Now, if I were the National Pork Board, I would say, you know, we it's not perfectly random, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But there's there's pretty strong circumstantial evidence that that this is causing pretty bad health outcomes and among the evidence is that people in these communities are really, really fed up and decided they wanted to fight back.
2: This is a great point, though, about the randomization. I, I did an episode uh, a while ago just all about air pollution hazards. And, you know, this is one of the things that's happening in policy right now is that in the name of scientific integrity, Trump's has his EPA moving to say only true experimental data can be used by the EPA in making these assessments. And from a sort of, abstract data quality standpoint it you know it's hard to say they're wrong right i mean a, a randomized study is better than the kind of observational studies you're talking about uh, at the same time uh, for fairly obvious reasons. You can't randomly assign people to have uh, pig shit sprayed into their house or any of the other pollution related things, right? Like It's not uh, doable. So essentially what they're saying is that in the face of some uncertainty about how solid this science is, we should act as if there's no science, Uh, when actually there's quite a bit. Right, like that, the sheer volume of studies around these issues makes it very hard to believe that, like, the answer is zero.
1: Exactly, most weeds listeners will know that 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 randomized trials have a lot of advantages, but that doesn't mean non-randomized trials are worthless. And uh, it also, if you look too narrowly at that, you you just can't look at certain problems. So one of the things that we we talk about in in the podcast is that the places where these farms are located, these are really disproportionately Black and Hispanic communities that don't have a ton of political power. And so there's there's kind of a, a, a double whammy where these farms come in, locate themselves near people who don't have a lot of political influence and power uh, so that they won't get in trouble. And then when those people do try to exercise political influence and say, this is hurting us, they say, no, it's just that you were like worse off beforehand. We're not making you worse off.
2: So this waste issue, right? This is a consequence of the density of pigs in these operations, essentially. I mean, obviously, all animals produce excrement of various kinds, uh, but it's when you're trying to have very large numbers of animals in in very tight packed conditions, you, you get a special problem around here. And so this whole season is about animal welfare type issues. And I can I can see your game here, right? Because we've been talking about harms to humans. Uh, but your your hidden agenda is actually has something to do with harms to animals, doesn't it?
1: I mean, I I I care about humans. Some of my best friends are humans. I'm married to a human, but uh, but I do care a lot about what this means for animals. Matt has had to listen to me and Ezra Klein be shrill vegetarians for many years while well, while well, Matt the meat eater puts up with us. But part of our goal in making the season, and I should say it's it's not me, I co-hosted this with Seagal Samuel and Bird Pinkerton, our producer, uh, was essential throughout it. We were trying to connect the problems that we see in meat production to things that people, regardless of their own diets, can understand. So like, I think you lose a lot of people right off the gate when you say, hey, the way that 98% of people eat is morally bad and then those 98% of people tune out and don't want to hear anything else. What we're trying to say is not like, if you're a meat eater, you're, you're not in the conversation. It's, this is a big business. And like all big businesses, it has corners that are cut. It has externalities that aren't fully internalized. Uh, it has consequences for the environment and for workers. And we're, we're asking people to think about Factory farms, not just as something that might cause harms to animals that make you squeamish and certainly make me squeamish, but as things that have these these wide ranging effects
2: on us all. But this is part of a, a sort of um, a larger uh, change of of thought, right? That's happened in the animal welfare community about how to go about this, right? Because one one sort of strategy you could do is to say, look, um, if you're eating meat, you're killing animals. Um, We think that that's wrong. Obviously, if there were people going around eating people, uh, we would just tell them to stop uh, (laughs) because because it's wrong. Right. Um, And I mean, I think the the sort of lesson learned in the community has been that that doesn't quite work as a as a political strategy. Right. And so there's interest in finding ways to sort of move things at the margin, because if you make some of these other policy changes, right, if you say, um, okay, well, we're not going to let you just like dump all kinds of environmental hazards. uh, In effect, there's less meat production. Right. Right. Exactly.
1: Um, I think a lot of the season is about coalition building and certainly the, the episode about pigs is is all about coalition building because it's about uh, a group of environmental justice advocates, uh, uh, mostly black residents um, who have been affected by this kind of pollution, teaming up with water keepers and river keepers and environmental activists and then uh, some animal rights activists giving support later um, because none of them on their own are powerful enough. Um, as you say, p- pigs don't vote. And weird people like me who care someday a lot about <laughs> someday. I think Zach Beecham has some piece on this, but the uh, some someday. But until pigs vote, they will rely on weird people like me who care about them to advocate for them, and there just are not enough of us. It, PETA does not have an army.
2: So what's the what's g- give us a sense of the the sort of general scope of of the season here? What's the what's the kind of full range of topics we're taking on? Sure. So we're,
1: um, it's, it's everything from sort of very live political disputes about how these plants are run. Uh, like the, the pig episode, um, we have an episode about lion speeds, uh, which is something that the department of agriculture controls, just how many chickens and other animals you have to butcher. If you're at a meat processing plant, uh, the Trump administration wants to do more. I think watchdogs are worried that a lot of diseased, uh, meat will get by that way. And also people might get injured. Um, but then we also have a lot more sort of philosophical and abstract things about how we think about our meat. And so our second episode, uh, Bicycle Samuel, is all about sort of how we think about the animals in our lives and why we apply different standards to each of them. So uh, why people who have dogs and love them deeply also love barbecue. Um, why it is that we, we treat cats as having different moral status than pigs, even though pigs are almost certainly smarter. And I say that as, as a deranged cat dad. Um, but the uh, idea more generally is to ask us to, to think critically about the role meat plays in our lives. And so Seagal has a lot of interviews with neuroscientists, with philosophers, with people who study social movements about these bigger ideas shaping how we think about meat. And we also have a few sort of more solutions-oriented episodes. Um, we talked to a man who goes back to his family's ranch on the edge of the Amazon in Brazil uh, to try to change how they do the grazing there for their cattle. So the scope is very, very broad, but our hope is that each aspect of it Helps people reconsider a certain aspect of the way the meat system works.
2: I become newly woke on cattle grazing as a topic because. Um, so I, I, I'm going to just endlessly tout my my book, One Billion Americans, available in stores today. Um, in, in the course of researching this, you know, I had cause to uh, look into subjects that I had previously uh, ignored in life, such as what is the actual margin on which sort of wildlife and and nature uh, exists in in the United States. And just an incredibly large share of the land area um, in America is given over to cattle grazing and, and cattle production. And it's an incredible land use burden. I mean, much more so than what you think of as development, right? And so people will sort of fight about green space and housing or little strip malls somewhere. But like the, the, the margin on which like wilderness preservation or, or natural ecologies and human use operates is, is very... Very substantially related to meat cultivation, um, and, and in Brazil as as well, right? I mean, so it's they're not cutting down the rainforest to expand São Paulo, Sao Paulo, right? It's right. it's that cows are incredibly uh, land hungry, or or their owners at least are, and it's it has incredible impacts on on the rainforest there.
1: Absolutely, and I think one thing the sort of more coalitional way of thinking about animals has done is is forced animal rights types to to think about other costs and and to reprioritize accordingly like um i knew some um some animal rights activists who a few years ago would have told you that eating cows is slightly better than eating chickens just because you don't have to kill as many of them to get the same amount of meat but cows are also among the most environmentally problematic, uh, livestock. Uh, they, they take up a ton of space as you mentioned, but also they produce a lot of methane. Um, they directly contribute to climate change in a way that, uh, that other animals, uh, don't as substantially. Um, and so I, I think there's been an effort to look more holistically at, at the costs of different aspects of livestock production and, um, and, that's something we're hoping to do with that episode and and a few others this season.
2: But I think the part of the point across of these, right, is that all the aspects of the meat production system uh, are implicated in uh, generating a lot of unpriced externalities right whether that's the kind of woodland consumption and, and methane you know burps of cattle or uh, it's more efficient right So in a, in a narrow sense like the climate impact of chickens is lower because uh, they're small and you can stack them on top of each other in, in cages and things like that uh, but it's a, an incredible uh, source of, of disease risk to do that
1: absolutely and we we actually have two episodes all about disease risk um which i we were actually planning before everything um before disease risk became very relevant to all of our lives uh, but but there are a lot of uh, risks there so um one is that a lot of novel pathogens as as we saw with covid uh, come from wildlife um i don't know if we've ever sort of nailed down exactly how covid originated but there were a lot of plausible theories around Uh, live animal markets and uh, animals like pangolins. Yeah, I
2: thought we were blaming the pangolins.
1: They're a very cool animal, but they might have killed us all. But that's that's a general problem. And COVID-19 is not going to be the last disease to transfer from a live animal, a live non-human animal to humans. And one of the main ways that people come into very close contact with other live animals that are sort of in environments where they're generating new mutations of diseases is in these these giant factory farms that we're talking about. And another more specific risk is just because they're so vulnerable to disease, uh, farmers often give them lots of antibiotics. So the, the those pathogens then often become resistant to those antibiotics, and that can cause sort of major health consequences for humans as well. If those bacteria make the jump, and we don't really have the medicines to tackle them, and,
2: and I mean, this is a huge issue because I mean, one of the worst things people do is like some problem that they hadn't thought hard enough be- about before emerges and so the maybe there will be a zoonotic virus from china scenario like it had been out there like vox had a video about this like people in the like weird public health world and like i like to think about odd risks world had been talking about this scenario and then it happened and people got very fired up about it like oh we got this china virus like the chinese are not doing enough um And then there's no attention being paid to antibiotic resistance in American meat production, which is different, like it's it's not the same as where COVID came from, but the exact same people who were telling you to worry about these Chinese markets have also been saying that we should worry about this. And I I mean, I guess I don't totally understand uh, where it comes from, but it's like you pack a lot of animals together and I guess it's very unhealthy and they don't, I don't know, it's not like Charlotte's Web or something. There's no like uh tender veterinarian treating the animals. Um, so they just like what they they just like dose everybody with antibiotics all the time.
1: Right. Um, and there's just, there are huge numbers of animals and they're also circulating. So it's, it's not just like you have some clump of animals that are, they're isolated from the world. And so if none of them are sick, they're, uh, they'll be Okay. You have younger generations coming in constantly. Uh, For pigs, they often live like eight to nine months. Um, And so in the course of a year, you're going through one and then some generations of pigs. Um, And so with each new generation and with each new one that gets contact to some part of the natural environment because they're in structures, but they're not. They're not like hermetically sealed from the world. Um, they, among other things, have humans taking care of them who can can transmit diseases both ways. That that makes it a really good petri dish for a lot of disease mutations and and also just the sheer number of them. If you if you cumulatively over a decade have millions or billions of animals who are in the same facility um, that gets cleaned, but but maybe not perfectly. There's just a lot of opportunities for stuff to go wrong in a way where I when I was growing up, my dad's boss, uh, because we lived in New Hampshire, had a sheep farm and he had like five sheep. Those sheep were fine. There was not a lot of opportunities for like deadly super viruses to be developed.
2: <laughs> right, right. So it, it's, it, you know, and, and I mean, again, this is a, a question. I mean, look, everybody should should listen to, to the season and, and check it out. Um, you know, the technical economics term for, for this stuff is is externalities. And the problem is, you know, to an extent, you have an interest in your animals not getting sick um it's it's bad but the harms of an antibiotic resistant outbreak or a zoonotic uh, virus outbreak extend to many 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 other people who then don't get to turn around and sue you right so it's like you you overindulge like farmers have some level of concern about the hygiene in these operations and some level of interest in the animals not all getting sick but not nearly enough. I mean, not because they're not because like they haven't listened to the season, like you, the weeds listener, need to listen to the season and inform yourself. But like, I think the people in the industry like understand these problems reasonably well. It's just like the rules, like it's a business, right? Like it's and and uh, you, you, there's a there's an episode about this, too. But like, it's really hard to make money as a chicken farmer. Like you don't have a lot of latitude to decide you want to just be nicer.
1: Absolutely. And. And it's hard to make money as a chicken farmer in part because of sort of antitrust and sort of power concentration dynamics that that uh, the Weeds crew has talked a lot about over the years. But that, yeah, uh, what farms demand in terms of chickens and what, what the processors who buy the chickens demand in terms of, of what they look like is a very specific bird. And so you've gotten the system where... Yes, there are sort of individual farmers who are growing birds, but they're all growing them for a handful of really big national conglomerates, and they're growing it to their specifications. And often they're even given chicks. So these these firms will deliver chicks to your individual farm. You'll grow them to specifications and sell them. But because there's kind of an, an implicit understanding between these companies that they don't compete with each other the the pay for these individual farmers is really really low it's kind of like becoming a franchiser for a mcdonald's or something you have to obey a lot of rules to be one of their chicken farmers and there's a really big risk that you spend a lot of money on it buying these chicks from the company and then trying to sell them back and what you get back doesn't pay for it so we we talked to some people who had just like dramatic variation in how much money they could make doing chicken farming and in some cases got into pretty bad debt.
2: Right. So it's I mean, it's an interesting thing. I mean, I think you probably probably most people don't give this any consideration. But, you know, you go to the supermarket. Right. And it's it's like a commodity business. Right. I mean, I guess there's labels on the chicken packages or something. Um, Tyson, that's a big that's a big yeah, chicken. That's a big one provider. Um, and so, if they were fully integrated, right? Because there could be a world in which you have these giant chicken conglomerates, and they're employing the chicken farmers directly. But then, certain kinds of liabilities and responsibilities attached to you as an employer, you also get less uh, sympathy when it comes to a like a, a regulatory battle, right? If you're going to say, okay, well, we're going to make this this giant chicken operation, you know, clean up its act. That's that's fine. But they instead structure themselves as no, 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 no. Like the chickens are raised by all these independent farmers, but the decisions are being made by what is it, like three, four? It's it's a small number. It's,
1: that's four, yeah. It's a very small number of companies. And because it's a small number of companies and because they tend to have geographic regions they control. Like an obvious question that would come to mind is why are all these farmers who are getting screwed over by these monopolies not speaking up against it? And the reason is that they would just be out of the chicken business. And for some of them, they want that. They tried it and it's not very attractive. But some people are really trying to make it as chicken farmers. This is their vocation, they want to make it work. And when they speak up, they're putting themselves in a lot of danger. And they're putting themselves in a lot of danger also in their communities where a lot of people are doing this. And so You don't want to be the one person in a company town who's who's raising concerns about the company because you're left pretty vulnerable.
2: And it's really interesting. I mean, we've done a couple of episodes about um, what I would call sort of like the new new antitrust problems, uh, mostly related to technology industry, uh, some kind of infrastructure things. But this is like really old school in a way, right? It, it, it's not identical to, but it really reminds me of the sort of classic populist era battles where you would have independent farmers, but in effect, the railroads are sort of, they control the choke point, right? At which the access to the market uh, provides and what kind of responsibilities can be can be put on them. Uh, of course, this has all been structured by the sort of um, gospel of consumer welfare. Um, and whatever you may say about uh, the meat industry in the United States, uh, chicken is really cheap. So on that level, it's working, right? It's
1: very cheap on that level. And um, it could be cheaper. I think you, there are some people who would make arguments that if you you broke up some of these monopolies, you you might be able to get it down. But it's also cheap because of regulatory capture. So in addition to sort of the old school uh, sort of farmers being under the thumb of, of the one bottleneck to them selling their uh, their wares, you have the additional problem of all the rules over safety are being set by the U.S. Department of Agriculture, which I think especially under Trump, but even under, under Obama to a substantial degree, was made up by people who were very sympathetic to and often worked alongside people in these farms. And so... One of the main determinants of how many chickens you get out are line speeds, how many chickens get processed per minute in a processing plant. That's set by the federal government. And if it were lower, all these companies would make less money and chicken would probably be a little bit more expensive, but it would be a lot safer for workers. And so there's there's both the antitrust story, which I, I imagine probably pushes up chicken prices a bit on the margin. But then this much bigger story where they're able to get really cheap chickens and produce a lot of them um, by using these regulatory levers.
2: And so wh- what does a world look like, broadly speaking, in which we are taking these different problems more seriously, right? In which we are, you know... Forcing you to use less, less damaging ways of disposing of the waste, not letting you run these lines um, at such express speeds, not letting you use antibiotics as such a crutch for the sort of the overcrowding of, of animals. Like, what's the what's the upshot of this? Sure. Um,
1: so there, there are a few different strategies for sort of big, large-scale reform. Um, one that that Ezra and I have written a bit about is this effort in the Senate by Elizabeth Warren and Cory Booker to explicitly try to phase out what are called CAFOs, or Concentrated Animal Feeding Operations, which is basically what the EPA and the USDA call factory farms uh, above a certain size. Um, allowing them and allowing them knowing what we know about their health risks is a choice it's it's a policy decision that's been made over many decades um but we can decide and would decide if that bill passed that that we're going to cap the size of of meat operations at a level where we can be assured of worker safety of uh responsible waste disposal that would certainly reduce the profit margins for these companies it might reduce the price it might increase the prices and i think the main argument you'll hear from these companies if, if it actually becomes a live political issue in the Senate and is sort of, are, are you really going to raise the price of chicken for your, for your constituents? But there are a lot of different regulatory worlds you can imagine, and one based more on sort of a, a Jeffersonian Yeoman farmer model where we get our meat from small providers at lower scale and higher cost is definitely possible. I think that would be desirable, and I think it would avert a lot of the harms that we're chronicling this season. Um, But it would be a big change. And I hope we we we're conveying the scale of the change that that would entail this season.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think this season really does a great job of capturing the sort of range of issues that are in play here. Uh, We obviously have a lot of, you know, several different kinds of animals that are raised for livestock. And, you know, the issues that they pose are each Distinct, but there's no. I mean, the thing that I think you re- really learn here, if you if you listen to the episode, is that like there's no there's no free lunch, so to speak, right? Like right. you could ca- you can look at one thing, you can look at climbing and say, oh, the cows are really bad, um, or you can look at the disease and say, oh, the chickens are really bad. Um, but it's like th- the the way that we are producing meat. Um, It just involves neglecting a lot of downsides in pursuit of really large quantities of really cheap meat. Yeah. All right. uh, That's really cool. This is super interesting. We are going to take a break now, and then we're going to come back with the first episode of the new season. I hope you guys will enjoy it and we'll listen to the rest. Um, So thank you so much, Dylan. And uh, let's take that break.
0: B-U-R-R-O-W.com slash weeds for 15% off. Burrow.com
3: slash weeds.
1: Reverend Ella Skipwith schedules her life around a smell. She wakes up and goes to check for it, almost like the weather.
4: I open the door to see if the odor is out there, Okay. If it's not out there, then if it's anything that I have to do outside, such as mow the lawn or rake the leaves or anything that I have to do outside, I try to hurry up and do it while the odor is not there. Because once the odor gets started, you cannot go outside. You have to keep your windows closed and you have to keep the doors closed so that the odor does not get in the house.
1: This odor is the smell of hog waste from giant industrial hog operations. And it's a common smell in counties across eastern North Carolina. The state is the third largest producer of swine in the U.S. It's home to more than 9 million pigs. All those pigs generate a lot of waste. And that waste generates the odor that people like Ella have to live with. For decades now, they have struggled to gather in their yards for barbecues or to hang their laundry outside. It seems pretty terrible. So when the people in these communities decided to protest against this odor, why were they not heard? From the Vox Media Podcast Network, I'm Dylan Matthews, and this is the third season of Future Perfect. This season, we're exploring how the meat we eat affects us all, because the complicated system we've created to produce cheap meat has consequences for everybody. Over the course of this season, we'll look at the consequences for animals, for the climate, for worker safety, and for our health. But today, we're looking at what hog farms have meant for the health and environment in North Carolina communities. And we'll see just how hard it is to fight for changes in how our meat is produced. The fight against hog waste in North Carolina has come from a bunch of different corners. Take Larry Baldwin. His corner is the environment. Back in 2002, Larry became one of North Carolina's river keepers, someone who monitors water quality in a river.
5: I was the noose river keeper. Actually, the lower noose river keeper, because there is an upper noose river keeper.
1: Noose, like noose? (laughs) N-E-U-S-E. Part of Larry's river keeping involved paying close attention to hog farms and their effects on his river. And to do that, he had to understand exactly how they were disposing of waste and why it might be a problem. He gave us a rundown of a typical hog operation. These were not farms out of a storybook.
5: And, and I even asked people, how many of you have seen the movie Charlotte's Web? How many of you cried? Just a little bit. Okay, that's not, <laughs> that's not how we raise our meat anymore.
1: Take pig meat, for example. Pigs are usually kept in a long, long building. It's dark and it's crowded with thousands of pigs inside. And if you'll forgive me, Larry's going to walk you through some very gross math.
5: One hog, one adult hog, produces between 8 and 10 times the amount of fecal matter per day as a human. That's 8 to 10 times as much poop. So if you take a facility
1: of 5,000 pigs and you do the math,
5: that's a town or a city of
1: 50,000 people. 50,000 people's worth of poop every single day. And that waste is not dealt with the way our waste is dealt with in cities. It's what I
5: refer to as an archaic system. It's called the lagoon spray field system. So imagine this long, low building, 500 feet long. The floor has open slats in it. So when they defecate or urinate, It falls through those slats into an area underneath the building. It goes through a pipe out into what they call a lagoon. When I say the word lagoon, probably what comes to mind is, you know, this place down in the Caribbean where pretty ladies sit around in bikinis drinking tequila.
1: These lagoons are
5: not that. They are cesspools. They are open pits of feces and urine. They can be the size of a football field.
1: Millions
5: of gallons.
1: Those open pits of waste have a
5: powerful smell. It is horrendous. If you ever really want to get on a serious weight loss program, don't worry about Slimslow or whatever. Every day before you're ready to eat, go sit beside a hog cesspool. It is that overwhelming. So
1: that's part of the source of the odor in the community.
5: But also, these pick
1: operations are literally just spraying this waste into the air.
5: The way to kind of visualize, you know, the backyard sprinkler that kind of, you know, it oscillates and goes around a circle.
1: Now, imagine one of those with a pipe several inches in diameter.
5: And so it's shooting this waste into the air. So you've got now you've got that mist that's in the air, but now it's also landing on the ground.
1: The hog operations argue that bacteria break down the poop in the lagoons, making it suitable as fertilizer. And so they're spraying it on the fields in order to recycle the nutrients. And they say that they're doing it responsibly. But Larry worries about runoff. He's measured dangerous levels of fecal matter in the water. He's seen the open pits of waste flood after storms, spilling poop everywhere. He's devoted a lot of time and energy to documenting these problems. Okay, well, I probably
5: shouldn't tell this to, well, I'm going to tell it to everybody now.
1: Back in 2009, Larry was preparing his wife for their third wedding anniversary.
5: I said, uh, I got a special day planned for you. So we went to lunch, had a nice lunch. And then Larry introduced an extra surprise. I said, change your clothes, we're, getting, we're going for a boat ride. What are we going to do? Um, I took her out counting dead fish
1: there'd been a massive fish die-off linked to farm runoff. And as Larry explained to my producer, Bird, he really needed to know how many fish were dead for public health reasons.
5: But you have to go when it happens. And here's one of the biggest differences between what we do as waterkeepers. Wait, 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 wait,
2: wait, 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 wait. Why is she still married to you? I thought
5: I could kind of get past that pretty quick and just keep going, but you're not going to let that happen, are you? Clearly, Larry was
1: very committed to his job. And yet, in spite of all these efforts and sacrifices for his research, it wasn't getting much traction. He'd sent his findings to the state, but they continued issuing permits to hog operations. And Larry wasn't the only one who was frustrated, or the only one doing research. A community organizer named Naima Muhammad was also collecting information, along with a scientist named Steve Wing.
4: There would never be another Steve Wing. He was a middle aged white man who believed that communities have a right to have research to help them understand what was happening to them. Steve has since passed away, but he showed Naima that factory
1: farms are not evenly distributed throughout the state. There are people who live close to not just one of these pig operations and their lagoons of waste, but several of them. And those lagoons are clustered in counties that are 40 to 50% Black and Hispanic.
4: And we felt like it was no mistake because these were the communities that had the least amount of economic power and political clout to fight off these industries.
1: When Naima and Steve found a connection between pig farms and Black and brown communities, they wanted to let people know. Naima had spent most of her life organizing communities for social justice causes. So she had a plan. She'd drive out to different counties and ask people if they already had an organization that was talking about the waste spraying. And she'd record their stories. Every time they spray that legume out
4: there, I have to wear a mask. This odor is terrible. My head throbs. my eyes puff up, my eyes run water. Your eyes start running water, you start coughing and gagging, you feel like you want to throw up, you know, and trying to hold your breath to it at the same time, trying to get to and from your destination. I got a letter telling me not to drink my water, don't cook with it, don't wash with it, and if possible, don't let my dogs drink it.
1: Steve would also hear stories. This is from a lecture he gave before his death. People told me about contaminated wells, the stench from hog operations that woke them at night, and children who were mocked at school for smelling like hog waste. But when community members complained to the hog farmers, Naima says that they were told that the farms were having no effects, that their kid's asthma, for example, probably came from the family pet. So Naima and Steve wanted to help people prove there was a problem.
4: Now one thing we have to remember is that This was back in a period where Black people didn't trust researchers.
1: Many still don't, because of the legacy of 20th century studies like Tuskegee, where doctors withheld proven syphilis treatments from their Black patients for 40 years, just to see what would happen to them. But Naima and Steve asked the community to help them design their experiments.
4: And so they would tell us what they needed, and then together we would all sit down and try to figure out how do we get to what you need. People wanting to know why when I go outside, my nose burn, my eyes run, I get nauseated, I throw up, and then that would help shape the research.
1: Ultimately, they designed a study to monitor 16 neighborhoods. They gave each participant a journal, a kit with equipment like a blood pressure machine, a timer, a peak flow meter, and tubes for saliva samples. Steve's team would take readings in the area. They'd get a sense of how much hydrogen sulfide was in the air when the operations were spraying and when they weren't. And the participants would go out twice a day and record their own experiences in the journal. They'd rate the smell, take their blood pressure, breathe into a machine that recorded
4: information about their lungs. And they would give the saliva sample, cap it real tight, stick it in the freezer.
2: What did we find? Levels of gases and particles recorded by the pollution monitors were related to respiratory symptoms, lung function, irritation of the eyes and nose, stress and anxiety, and residents' ability to engage
1: in daily routine activities. They also did studies linking hog farms to hypertension, asthma, mental health issues. The National Pork Council has since commissioned a report pushing back on Steve Wing's finding that communities of color were disproportionately impacted. They questioned the size of the radius around farms that he selected to measure impact. They also objected to how Steve sourced participants for his studies from the community and pointed out that only a small fraction of participants rated the odor as very strong. But given the relationship this research found between odor and health issues, it seems clear it's not great for communities to have giant open pools of waste nearby, especially if you're periodically spraying that waste into the air. So Naima and Steve were fighting their fight and feeling frustrated. And back on the Lower Noose River, Larry Baldwin was doing his riverkeeper thing, counting dead fish on his wedding anniversary and taking samples, but feeling frustrated.
4: We knew that the water keepers and the river keepers were documenting what was happening in our waterways in North Carolina. But they would always talk about the impacts on the water and the impacts on the fish. And we was like, well, what about the impact on human beings? And so we sort of confronted them on that.
5: And then we all began talking about it. We started seeing this marriage of two two different points of view.
1: Naima's organization formed a coalition with Larry Baldwin's River Keepers and Water Keepers, and also with a local group co-founded by a community activist named Devon Hall. Together, they started lobbying the North Carolina legislature for change, hard. In 2007, Naima and Devon took a group of people down to the state capitol in Raleigh. They gave the legislators all their scientific documentation. They gave them copies of a DVD Naima put together with community members' stories. And they built a mock hog farm on the lawn outside the legislature. It had two little hog houses. It had the roof pulled back so you could see the hogs and their cages inside. And it had two kiddie pools filled with 40 gallons of pig poop.
4: So when we were pouring it into our lagoon, the facilities manager came over and asked us what we were doing. And when we told him, he said, Well, if y'all spill one drop on this lawn out here, we're going to have to find your organizations thousands of dollars for cleanup because we're going to have to call in hazmat because it's toxic waste. We say toxic waste, really? Well, we, we didn't know that because when we loaded it on the truck, it was organic fertilizer.
1: Remember, that's what the hog operations called it to justify spraying it on the field.
4: So we don't understand how we drove it 40 miles up the road, and then you tell us it's toxic waste.
1: And since hog operations were spraying this organic fertilizer near homes, Naima's mock hog operation had an irrigator spraying waste into the air. The legislators complained about the smell.
4: Yeah, that's disgusting. And we was like, disgusting, Really? It's only 40 gallons, but you ask the to live with 19 million tons of this stuff every year. So, you know, we don't see what your problem is.
1: So, with their combined forces, Larry and Naima and Devon were trying to become something that the legislators and the hog operators couldn't just
5: ignore. Because at one point, you know, they just had to worry about these crazy environmentalists over here and they had to worry about these environmental justice folks over here. Oh, crap. Now they're together. They're working together. And now they're starting to bring in attorneys.
3: I'm Marian Engelman-Lotto, and I worked at Earth Justice which is a nationwide not-for-profit.
5: I love Marianne (laughs) Law. She's forgotten more about some of the stuff than I'll ever know. She is just that intelligent. And yes, you can tell her I said that. Marianne had actually been
1: interested in the problem with hog farms and waste for a while. And now she was coming to North Carolina to help Larry and Naima and everybody else who'd been fighting for such a long time. So, after the break, what happens when Naima and Larry and Devon and Marianne all combine forces? — Welcome back. In the early 2010s, Marian Lotto's legal nonprofit gave her permission to spend some time and energy on hog farms and their environmental impact. So she came down to North Carolina to meet with Naima and Larry and Devon.
3: And they had a budget, I think, of negative one. Um, (laughs) The first time I called them, I remember, you know, they had no gas money.
1: And money continued to be a problem over the years. It dictated where they would get together. So, for an important meeting in 2013...
3: We met at uh, the favorite pizza hut that is off an exit off the highway, so it was near to everybody.
1: As they sat in the back of the pizza hut, Marianne helped them think through their options. She outlined one potential approach that was a little unusual. Basically, Marianne thought they could hit the state instead of the hog farms. Every five years, the hog farms would go to the Department of Environmental Quality in North Carolina and say, can we have a permit saying our hog farms are safe, please? And the state would say, sure.
3: People would complain. Our waterways are being polluted. Our air is polluted. You know, we have asthma. There's all this research coming out. And yet... The state just keeps churning out the same permit every five years without sufficient protections for people's health. You you could start a transformation away from Lagoon and Sprayfield systems. You could. There are a lot of things you could do, but they weren't doing any of those things. They were just churning out the same permits.
1: And that was where, according to Marianne, the state was breaking a central tenet of civil rights law. Because the state was getting money from the Environmental Protection Agency, federal money. And the civil rights law was clear. Any department getting that federal money could not be doing things that hurt people of one race more than another. And if the state was giving out permits that hit Black and brown communities harder than other communities, and that disparate impact was avoidable, then they were discriminating. Therefore, in Marianne's logic, under the law, the EPA should stop giving North Carolina money. But it was not all cheese, pizza, and exciting plans.
3: I did not have high hopes at the time that it would get us very much.
1: Marianne was a realist. She could only think of one time that the EPA had ruled that a department was discriminating, even though she could think of lots of potential examples of environmental racism. And even if they did convince the EPA, then they'd have to do more work with the state to make changes, which would be a whole other struggle.
3: And so I think there is no way to be a responsible lawyer or advocate and talk to a client or community and raise expectations that it's going to be effective.
1: So she presented the option and over the course of more meetings, gave Naima and Devon and Larry time to think about whether or not they
5: wanted to pursue it. It's like, you don't have to ask me twice. It's not because I'm a rabble rouser. It's a passion for me. This was the
1: approach they all wanted to take.
5: That was six years ago. The crap that we went through.
1: It was a long, long slog. First, the lawyers had to collect all the studies that had been done in one place, and all the comments people had left on past permits.
3: The social scientists were involved, the epidemiologists were involved, um, the water keepers were involved, and residents were involved in giving statements.
1: The statements were a risk because some people's names were on the record.
3: Members who have spoken out have felt threatened.
4: Retaliation because they had already experienced that over the years.
1: People told EPA officials that they had been tailgated, yelled at, confronted in parking lots, and threatened with guns and physical violence for speaking up. One woman said that someone connected to a hog operation had come in and shaken her mother in her chair and threatened her family. And since these pork plants create thousands of jobs in these counties, Larry says that there was also community pressure not to rock the boat.
5: These are some of the bravest people I know. Because they still have to live in those communities.
1: But once they gathered all the evidence and presented it, they had a real stroke of success. In January of 2017, the EPA wrote what's called a letter of concern. It cited Steve's research about the effect that the hog operations were having on nearby communities, and especially communities of color. And it recommended that the North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality rethink the permits that it gave to swine operations. For the team, this letter was fantastic. But they still had to have settlement talks with the state of North Carolina to figure out what changes the state would be willing to make. Those talks stretched out for months.
4: Well, they were
1: like a nightmare to me. (laughs) There's been Pulitzer Prize-winning reporting on the close ties between North Carolina's politicians and the pork industry. And in the talks, both Naima and Larry felt that the state was too cozy with the pork
4: interests. And I said this to Marion more than once. I think we just wasting our
1: time
3: and
4: our breath.
1: Eventually, the settlement did come through.
3: Settlements by their nature are compromises. Nobody's super happy with all the results.
1: Here's what they did get.
3: We did get air monitoring, water monitoring.
1: And they got the state to agree to make some changes to the draft of the new hog operation permits.
3: So that's a tremendous accomplishment through this process for both the state and and for the community. But did we go out and buy champagne for everyone? No. There's just so much more to do. This whole
1: fight was over the lagoon and spray field systems. And the hog operations can keep their lagoons. They can still spray waste. In the settlement... The North Carolina Department of Environmental Quality was clear that they did not think their earlier permits violated civil rights law or disproportionately impacted communities of color. The National Pork Council put out a report arguing that the EPA's letter of concern was based on Steve Wing's findings. And in their view, those findings were flawed. The Department of Environmental Quality has done new air quality studies. They found that there are times when levels of gases like hydrogen sulfide in the air are above average, but not high enough for them to intervene. We reached out to them for comment on this story, and they pointed to their new air and water monitoring controls and the new permit drafts as signs of progress. To Naima and Larry, after so many hours and so much work, this is a little hard to accept.
4: We were not satisfied at all. Because we felt it could have been stronger. It needs to have been stronger.
5: They're tossing us bones. You know, here's a bone. Go go, sit in a corner, chew on his bone, and shut up is almost the way it felt to me. So I, I wish I could adequately, in a very short sentence, describe what it's like to work in this mess. Frustration is probably the best word for it. Frustrating and pissing you off.
3: There's discouragement, there's frustration, sometimes there's anger. But but
5: my wife has asked me before, she said, Would you do this all over again? Without a doubt.
3: As a matter
4: of fact, I had granddaughters that said, Grandma, when you gonna retire? I was like, Retire? In this world you don't retire, you just die.
1: Every time I walk into a grocery store, I walk past stacks and stacks of pork and chicken and beef. And since the vast majority of the meat we eat in the U.S. comes from factory farms like the ones in North Carolina, there's a good chance that those pork chops and chicken drumsticks left a trail of waste behind them.
4: And so for us to eat cheap the way we do when we go into these markets, we need to think about who's paying the price. Who's bearing the brunt of this cheap meat we keep getting?
5: I'm not going to sit here and tell you or your listeners that they have to become vegetarian. I don't have that right, but I can at least try to illustrate to you what's happening to get that pork chop on your plate and what responsibility you have for it being there.
1: There are 7 more episodes to come all about how the meat we eat gets to our plate. So, keep listening. For now, this episode was produced and co-reported by Bird Pinkerton and edited by Amy Drozdowska. Our hosts are Sigal Samuel and me, Dylan Matthews. Jillian Weinberger is the senior producer of this show and Jared Paul mixes it. Liliana Michelena fact-checked this episode. And Liz Nelson is the executive producer for Vox Podcasts. Ella Skipowitz's interview and interviews with other residents all came from Naima Mohammed's video, The Rest of the Story. Thanks to her and to Acacia Cadogan. Marianne Engelman-Lotto now directs the Environmental Justice Clinic at Vermont Law School. Thanks to her and to Viveka Morris from the Yale Law, Ethics, and Animals program who advised us. Thanks also to Kate Daly and Lauren Katz. Music in this episode from APM, Chris Zabriskie, Pottington Bear, Little Glass Men, and Jared Paul. This podcast is made possible thanks to support from Animal Charity Evaluators. They research and promote the most effective ways to help animals. And if you like this podcast, we're going to be covering this topic a lot more. And in fact, we're hiring an editor to help us do that. We've got a link to Future Perfect's Future of Meat page in the show notes if you want to find out more.